This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. Rev Angel is an author, activist, master trainer, and founder of the Center for Transformative Change. She is the acclaimed author of Being Black, Zen and the Art of Living with Fearlessness and Grace. Rev Angel applies wisdom teachings and embodied practice to social issues and is a preeminent thought leader of transformative social change. What sounds true, Rev Angel will be a featured presenter on our new Year of Mindfulness program. It's a year-long offering where participants receive guidance from a diverse group of leading voices, discovering new techniques for bringing mindfulness into every part of our day while receiving ongoing support from a community of practitioners. A year of mindfulness begins on February 13th, 2017, and you're welcome to find out more information about a year of mindfulness at SoundsTrue.com. This episode of Insights at the Edge was originally recorded as part of SoundsTrue's Meditation Summit, which was a gathering online of 30 different meditation teachers who each shared a different practice from their tradition and approach. In this episode, adapted for Insights at the Edge, Rev Angel and I spoke about how many people become drawn to meditation through the sense of retreat, but it is actually our re-engagement with the fullness of what is that is the most valuable aspect of meditation. We talked about what she calls a warrior spirit, the cultivation of a willingness to engage with the world, to shed the ideas of who we are in order to find out who we actually are and how this allows us to be in an empowered relationship with the world. We talked about how we can find our joy only when we are released from a sense of fear and ignorance that keeps us from experiencing the joy that is always here. And finally, she shared with us a practice, a meditation practice that she calls effort and release. Here's my conversation with Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. To begin with, I love if you could speak some to the intersection of meditation and social change. I think for many people, they don't get how those two things are actually connected. Mm-hmm. That's great. I, I actually don't get how they're they're not connected. Um, you know, we we manifest the the 
life that we live in externally and it's completely founded on our in, inner life, the way that we relate to ourselves internally as well as the way that we relate to others internally. And so the self-talk that we have, the degree of um, noise in our mind and the way that our minds are racing, whether we're fundamentally present or not present both to ourselves and to others, has a direct relationship to how we show up in the world, what we find permissible in terms of what shows up in the world, what we choose to engage with in terms of levels, various forms of oppression, whether those things, we feel shut off to those things, whether we face them, whether we confront them, or whether we simply disappear and focus only on our own lives. Um, to a great degree, our ability to be present and to develop our capacity to, to be present wakes us up to the entire phenomenal world of what is going on in front of us. And particularly if our meditation is geared towards tending to our own suffering and what it is that is underneath all of our own lives, um, we begin to touch our own suffering. And the direct result of that is that we are immediately connected to being able to feel, hear, and see the suffering in the world. And to me, what that has, for, for me, what that has done has, it has drawn a bridge from my inner life uh, directly to what is happening in the world. And, and then that calls for a response. If you truly hear your own suffering, you then hear the suffering of others because there is no just us. Uh, and the, the, the natural and I think organic response when you Truly, I want to say both hear the suffering in the world, but also have a sufficient sense of grounding in your own relationship to yourself. Then you can, then you actually feel called to respond. And, you know, what we call that is compassion. Now, you gave your initial response saying that you don't get how meditation and social change are disconnected. And I think for people for whom they're disconnected, let's start on the meditator's side. I love meditating, I love going on retreat, being deeply internal, and I feel too sensitive for the world, the world is too coarse for me, and I'm in a space more of eternity, and I just don't feel connected. That's my experience of meditation. So, I mean, someone might be in that space, and for them it's not very connected. What would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, an important aspect of meditation. Uh, I think it's an important point and, and part of the journey of meditation to actually retreat. It's also a significant, and I think the certainly the greater part of the historic uh, Buddha's life was to actually re-engage and enter the world from the perspective of having been able to touch the depths of one's own inner life and have that disconnect so that you can hear. You know, it's sort of like putting on headphones when you're uh, you know, in a, in a noisy place and you close out the rest of the environment so that you can really hear yourself think and breathe and feel and distinguish the difference between what is happening outside and your degree of reactivity to what is happening outside. But ultimately, you take the headphones off and you get back out into the world. And so I think that it's very much a part of the 
unfolding of our practice and the depth of our practice to choose to re-engage the world as part of how we integrate ourselves and our own lives back into the fullness of everything that there is. Reverend Angel, I have a feeling that many of our listeners and viewers are not familiar with you. This will be their first meeting with you. And I'm wondering if you can just give people a sense of how you became attracted to Zen. What called you about Zen? Uh, well, I think that, you know, certainly what, what called, called me in the in the first order is just a sense of that that sense of retreat you know the the opportunity i was uh i would say my there's my initial touch of zen you know i ran into the book zen mind beginner's mind by shunru suzuki roshi uh and it felt like it was just speaking my language there was you know someone suddenly decoded my internal relationship to myself and my own world um and that was sort of like it was there at the ground, and I began my own sort of, you know, haphazard practice, sitting in a closet, and you know the kinds of things that we do. Uh, and then I, the thing happened to me that happens to many people. I had a, a, an experience of great suffering and loss in my life. My uh, grandfather, who was very dear to me, passed away, and Zen was there to catch me. Or my practice, the meditation practice, was there to catch me. And that encouraged me to deepen that practice because what it enabled me to do is to be able to pay attention to my own experience. And to actually, I, I came to realize that I was not living my own life. I wasn't, I wasn't actually, I didn't even know what my own life was. I was lots of things that were labels that were outside. I was African American, I was mixed race, I was female, I was queer, I was, um, you know, cool, a New Yorker, I, you know, I was a cafe owner. There were lots of things that were foisted upon me and that I took on, that I engaged. Um, also, as a result of like racial construct, I wasn't necessarily worthy. I wasn't necessarily going to go, you know, but so far, uh, you know, there, there were lots of identities and labels that I came to realize that were, they weren't mine, I, you know, as in, I was carrying them around with me, but I don't even know where they came from. And what the practice enabled me to do is to actually be able to distinguish uh, a sense of my own voice, where I was, who I was, what was the ground that I stood on when all of those other labels were taken away, when I didn't have those things to relate to. And in many ways, that correlated to the feeling that I was in as a result of that suffering. It's like, it's all gone. And what, what of this matters? The Zen practice enabled me to discover for myself and what actually mattered to me. And then to rebuild from that inner place of grounding and rebuild outside and then go outside and take that out. Now, I know you talk about Zen calling forth a warrior spirit in you and in committed practitioners. What is that warrior spirit and how does meditation connect us to it? Yeah, I, you know, I would say that it's even more than Zen for sure. I think it is, you know, over the years I've really come to understand it's, it really is the, the, this cultivation, as I was speaking before, of a willingness to actually engage the world. And so for me, when you find a solid ground 
And I don't mean a, a ground where you falsely believe that nothing's going to change, but you, you, you find the, salt, the ground of groundlessness, actually, right? that things will change and they will keep moving and they won't always be the way that you want them to, that you will suffer, but you will also be able to, that will allow you to experience uh, great joy, that you can find joy in the midst of suffering. In fact, that's exactly where joy lives. When you get in touch with that for yourself, and you uh, uh, give yourself the opportunity to cast off all of the ideas about who you are and get in touch with who you really are. Uh, for me, what that means is you are then empowered to actually be in relationship to the world. So I think many of us retreat from the world or resist because we have a sense of being overwhelmed by it, that yeah. it will overwhelm us, that we won't be able to survive, that uh, if we actually hear the suffering, we won't be able to be able to tend to ourselves that we'll be, you know, it's just that it's just too much. And paradoxically, the opposite is true, that when we are deeply grounded in our own being, we discover that there is no separate us and then them. And so we have a generative capacity that comes from, so a, a real, a liveliness that comes from being able to touch this ground, to be seated, to be rooted in this ground of our own being. And that warrior spirit is what comes forth from that, which is, oh yeah, I'm, I'm willing. I'm willing to engage the world, like bring it on because I'm not afraid anymore that the ground is going to disappear beneath me because it wasn't there to begin with. And that's actually empowering as opposed to overwhelming or disempowering. It's when we lose the idea of looking for something that's going to hold us up or fix it or keep it in place or keep it from going astray. When we release ourselves of, of that idea, paradoxically, we're actually empowered to really engage with what comes at us in life with, without a sense of how do I figure out where the safety net is at? you let go and you say, I can actually just jump out there because there is no safety net. The safety net is me and whatever it is that I unfold in my life is what I have to work with. Now, you, you said something that really caught my attention, that if we go deeply into our suffering, right at the heart of it, at the center of it, I think you said, is where we'll find our joy. And I noticed when you, as you said that, I had a question mark come up inside me. I thought, really? That's where I'm going to find my joy? Right in the middle of my deep suffering and the world's deep suffering? Really? Absolutely. Yeah. I think we have been, uh, as Spike Lee would say, bamboozled and hoodwinked into believing that our joy exists in some kind of other place, that when we finally get to this other place, and I think that the Western expression and the way that we have put forth uh, the conversation about Buddhism and Dharma uh, in general has also helped to cultivate that sense of like, oh, there's this other place that we're going to get. And once we arrive at that other place, it'll all be better. And and really, the, the, the place that we most need to go deeply into and to tend to is the place in which we, the places in which that we are most ignoring, the places that we, we are most avoiding, the places that we are most suffering. Because when we don't touch our own suffering, what we do is we actually create more suffering 
um, our, we, we expand the darkness around us, right? So ignorance is actually deepened. And we, and we allow ourselves to create, I, I want to say like roadkill, we leave behind roadkill of suffering in terms of how we relate to other people, how we relate to the world, what we allow to unfold in terms of patriarchy, in terms of racism, in terms of uh, xenophobia, uh, you know, that we, we see quite a, a rise of in our country in the, in the last little while. We allow those things to happen because actually we feel overwhelmed by it because we're not tending to the suffering in ourselves. So when we get into the suffering and what it is that we're avoiding, we're relieved. We're relieved of that sense of fear and becoming small and trying to fit into smaller and smaller containers. And that's where our joy is found. I'm not saying that like in the middle of our mess, there's a big ice cream cone. That's not what I mean by find joy in the midst of our suffering. I'm saying that we find our joy because we're released of a sense of fear and um, ignorance that is what keeps us from being able to directly experience the joy that is actually always there, always available to us in life. Reverend Angel, I so appreciate the fearlessness in which you talk about being with our suffering. And I want to understand more how you feel people can cultivate that kind of fearlessness in themselves. I think for some people, when it comes to facing whether it's intergenerational suffering or the pain in the world, there's a part of them that just freezes and puts up a defense and says, I can't do it. And here you are speaking so eloquently about just, you know, walk right in. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, I this is the main subject that I'm interested in these days is really that it's time for us to, to practice what I call and enter into what I call a radical dharma. And, Radical, you know, we're sort of freaked out about that word because we have all kind of strange connotations of it in this country. But when I say radical, it comes from the root radix, which means whole, which is to, uh, or complete, right? But so to have a complete dharma, to have a complete truth, and the complete truth means to be willing to investigate not just the parts of ourselves that feel like, eh, I can I can navigate that, I'm I'm ready to get to that but rather to be really willing to cultivate our sense of a skill, right? It's sort of like entering into the cold beach water. You put a toe in and you put a foot in, you get an ankle in, you get into up to your calf and then your knee, but you have to be willing to keep stepping in further and further again in order to be able to swim in the, in the great ocean of life that is available to all of us. And so, we have, I think, out of our cultural proclivity to package things, we have uh, generated and passed on a, a kind of relationship to our inner life, to our spiritual life, to our practice life, to, to Dharma that is uh, packaged and it is well-maintained and, and is stuck in a particular place where right? we put it on Tuesday evenings at six from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. And really the idea of uh, such a powerful and potent practice as is meditation 
is to actually to draw the lens back as far as we possibly can onto the entirety of our lives. And so that is the entirety of our trauma, the entirety of our wounding, the entirety of our history, the entirety of how we take care of ourselves, how we relate to ourselves and others. And when I say others, not just the the others that we feel comfortable with, but the people that we feel most other from. Uh, for me, that's that's a radical practice. And so my own practice has been to keep saying, and where have I not yet looked? And to where, where and where have I not yet looked? And to be willing to investigate the places that I have not yet turned the light of the Dharma on, to turn the light of my practice on, to bring into, to invite into my meditation practice, and really to sit with those places and allow what is true for me and what is real for me to, to come up and to do that without judgment and to feel what I feel and to allow that to simply be there, to be in relationship with it. And, and then to carry on from there. And I, and I think that what it is is not so much that I'm choosing to be a warrior, but rather when we clear the things that are in our path, when we just take care of the stuff that's in our path that's hidden because we've been taught to avoid it and to make it go away, that what emerges is the warriorship, the fearlessness that is actually just true for all of us. It's how we, it's how we come. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. At this point, Reverend Angel, I would love it if you could take us through the practice that you've offered to teach as part of the Meditation Summit, a practice on effort and release, how to practice. And to begin, could you introduce the practice to us? Yeah, sure. Uh, so this this practice comes from my own experience with yoga. I have uh, developed a practice I called Fearless Yoga. And in going through the Yoga Sutras, the classic text in yoga, there is a part that talks about these two essential elements to practice, and I translate them as effort and release. And that is to say that on the one hand, we want to really establish the the basics of our practice, the, the firm foundation, building in the structure, and giving it everything you got. So really show up to your practice. You really show up to the moment that's in front of you. And then you release. You release all of the effort so that what you're not doing is that you're you're not continuing to effort as part of the, the practice that the effort is actually made up of this, uh, I want to say, blending or integration. It's really a blending of, of effort on the one hand and release on the other. One of the things, the reasons that I I developed that practice, I do a lot of work with people that do social change, and there's a strong orientation towards doing, getting things done, accomplishing. And I think that we've brought a lot of that 
sensibility, the sort of doer, the, the, the work ethic of like we have to do, we have to accomplish something to our mindfulness and meditation practices in general. And so what we're doing actually is creating more anxiety around the very practice that's intention, I think, is ultimately to liberate us from a sense of doing anything other than being who we are. So effort and release is about how to practice really being who you are. Well, I'm glad you're going to teach this because I think that often people with their meditation practice end up feeling either, you know, the saying too tight, too much effort or too loose. And before you know it, they're collapsed and falling asleep. So I'm curious to know how you'll balance these two or blend. So let's do it. Okay. So I, what I want to do is first set out a, a a basic understanding of what it is we'll be doing as I spoke about it a little bit. And so the idea is that I'll give instructions and we're setting the foundation and we'll build a structure of a, of a meditation, a seated meditation posture. And then the idea is that everything that is not necessary to maintain the structure of the posture. So whatever we don't need that actually maintains the the inner workings that hold us up is what we're going to let go of. And so that's the basic idea, effort on the one hand, and then release and allow ourselves to to, to simply relax into it. And another way of saying that also, also we say be upright and flexible. Right? And so we start with actually finding our ground. And I like to use the same basic instructions that is used in a, a Zen how to sit instruction that's given by a 12th century Zen master, uh, Dogen. And he gives these instructions and basically says, so you, you want to find a, a, your, your comfortable seat. So really find your sits bones and, and make sure that they're really, really firmly connected to the seat beneath you, whether that's your cushion or your chair, whatever you're sitting on. And I think for many people, we often miss out on that particular instruction. So we, we tend to kind of sit up high where our sit bones are not fully rooted. And the way that you want to do that is actually grab a hold of your of your buttocks and pull the buttocks so that you can actually find the, the bony protrusions in underneath you and connect them firmly to the seat and to the cushion. So you want to have a sense of stability so that when you think about moving that you that moving doesn't automatically happen. So you you, you want it so that you're so firmly rooted that it takes some effort actually to to move you from from your seat and so you want to have a, a strong and solid seat and from there we'll we'll build upwards then you want to press your crown towards the sky so we have a firm ground and then the dynamic tension of pressing the crown towards the sky and what that does is to create a, a length in your, so you want to have a length in your spine. And there's an instruction that says, have your ears against your shoulders. And ears against the shoulders means that there's also dynamic tension so that you're creating width. We often think of meditation as kind of like long and skinny way where we're, we get up very high and then 
we, we collapse because we can't keep that up. And so I think actually the key, the key thing in, the, in creating a, a firm structure is actually to have a, a wide base, right, that's under our bottom, but also to have a, wide, a sense of width and relationship from the left to the right. And so the way that you do that is really to push your shoulders outward away from your ears. So that's ears against the shoulders. And that's what that means. So you're pushing your shoulders out. And you'll know that you're doing that because you feel a sense of your rib cage expanding, exposing the heart. And you'll generate more of a sense of relationship with the world rather than other forms or approaches to meditation that actually tend to turn you so far inward that you actually feel cut off from the world. So this this practice is actually designed to allow us to to feel fully present and in relationship with the world. You also want to have your, uh, I'll step back and say also the ears are aligned with the shoulders as well. So that means that you're neither pitching forward nor are you setting back. So your ears are really well aligned with the shoulders. Your nose is aligned and against the navel. So you're, you're not tipping either to the left or to the right. The nose is aligned with the navel. So it's a plumb line drops straight down and also against the navel. That is to say that you have a dynamic tension where your navel is held downward by by the broad base underneath you and your nose is headed upwards with the um, crown of your head. And again, this creates a sense of like dynamic tension. So now you have a strong base, you have dynamic tension of the going to the sides as well as up and down. And as you can see, you're, you're really pushing all of your, um, your being outward. And so you can think of like uh, the, the David, right, where everything is pushing outward and in relationship. And then allow your, simply allow your elbows to just fall down by your side. The instruction I often give is to act as if you have a, an egg underneath your armpit. And so you don't want, it's a raw egg, so you don't want to squeeze it. And you don't want to flap your arms out so far that the egg falls out and breaks. So it's a kind of a soft, rested place. And just allow the hands to, people think a lot about the hands, just allow them to, the elbows to pivot in and just rest on your lap. Or if you like a particular way of holding your hands, a mudra of having the hands folded on top of each other, you can do that as well. And then finally, just do a little bit of swaying both to the sides and then back and forth where you can feel the sweet spot that's in the middle of both of those directions. And then finally, one long out breath. So you wanna, uh, I like to begin with an out breath because we're we're often um, over stimulated and so in breath stimulate us. So if we begin actually with one long out breath and so I'm gonna give the instruction in this way, you actually want to set that posture so strong foundation, find your sit bones, crown to the sky. So that's sit upright. 
Bring your ears against your shoulders and aligned and your nose against your navel, also aligned. And then the, the, your center of gravity is drops down into your belly as you bring your arms along the side of your body, pivoting the hands in to rest on your lap or on your knees, whatever, wherever is comfortable, but not just so that you're not pulling the arms forward. And that when you imagine what happens with gravity in, in 20 minutes, that it's not pulling you in any particular direction, that when gravity pulls down on you, you find yourself still grounded and centered. And now you've got all that effort and energy that's pushing out in these different directions. So finally, with one out breath, you release all of the air that you have in your belly, in your chest, and in, you truly mean everything. So all of the air that you have, it would sound something like this. And when nothing is left, you simply release the diaphragm and then continue with a natural breathing. And as you do that one long outbreath, what you're also doing is with the outbreath is letting the effort right that is involved in pressing against the nose, um, the, the nose and the navel, the ears and the shoulders, you're letting the muscular effort go. And so you're allowing the muscles to simply rest on the skeletal structure and not applying any more effort. And the only way that that works is if you set the foundation from the beginning, which is why we went through it very meticulously step by step. So once that structure is there, once you set a ground, once you have a, a rootedness that is a solid base beneath you, really having given yourself fully to extending, to broadening and being wide in relationship, right? But also extending into your full length. And I like to say that that's extending, when you open into your full length, you're actually expressing your dignity, your inherent dignity. And then releasing with one out breath, any kind of effort, any sense of there's something to do, there's something that you have to accomplish. And you do that both physically and symbolically by letting it go in your mind on the out breath, right? So if you're, all of your attention is actually on that out breath, then there is nothing else to be thinking about. So you're fully placing your attention there and simultaneously letting go of the efforting that is involved with your with your muscular body and all that is left all that remains is the solid foundation and the solid structure that you have created for you to simply relax in and to be with and so one more time we just walk through that very quickly so that it, it doesn't feel uh, disconnected from the instructions you create the solid ground by finding your sits bones. And you're going to sit upright, pressing your crown towards the sky. 
broaden or widen into a sense of relationship by pressing your ears against your shoulders. And lengthen into your dignity by pressing your nose against the navel. Allow your center of gravity to drop down and rest in your belly because our belly is the center of our action and it's where we keep what matters to us uh, rooted and at the, at the very center of what is in, of, of, our, of our being so that we can maintain what's important to us. And with one full out breath, you'll give one full out breath. That's really complete. And as you do that, releasing all muscular effort that's not necessary to maintain the structure of the posture. So complete out breath. with that casting the eyes downward. If that's uh, too difficult for some people, you may start with your eyes closed, but I encourage you to actually keep the eyes slightly open so that you let light in and you remain in relationship with your surroundings. And then simply notice your breath in whatever the quality of your breath is. It may be short, it may be long, it may feel deep, or it may feel shallow. Perhaps it's very smooth or perhaps it is feeling unsettled. Whatever it is, there's no need to actually change it in any way. So there's no effort involved in noticing the breath as it is, other than the effort of attention. And keeping the attention on this single point of the breath. And where you choose to keep your attention on the breath should be wherever it feels most noticeable, most prominent, most alive for you, whether that's the nostril or by your lips, if your lips are slightly parted, wherever it is, if maybe it's your chest, maybe it's your belly, wherever it is, is not important, but rather that you are comfortably able to keep your attention or to bring your attention to the breath. And consider that that, that is the single point of your practice for this time. Here's the other key part of the instruction. 
whenever you notice your attention has left your breath, it may happen in just a second, it may happen in 10 seconds, it may happen in 10 minutes. It doesn't really matter when, but whenever you notice that your attention is what I call other than point, meaning it's other than the point that you have chosen to focus on, you simply pick the attention up and bring it back to the point. And here's what it is. Anything that is other than where you have chosen to put your attention is other than the point. So you don't have to struggle with some exact position, but rather this is what I've chosen. And this is where I'll be keeping my attention to keep it on point. And when it's any place else, when it's thinking about dinner, when it has wandered off to the sounds that are far away outside of me, whether it's replaying the conversation that I had earlier or something that happened in the past that I wish I could have done differently. Or even if it's wondering, why can I not keep my attention on this point? That's still other than point. And so you simply bring your attention back to the point of your meditation. In this way, what we come to understand is that meditation is not so much, in, in this particular practice, it's not so much about whether you keep your attention on a particular point, but rather it's about whether you choose to bring yourself back to the point once you have lost it. And so there is uh, a releasing of a fixation on staying on the point, but rather allowing ourselves to develop the capacity to notice when we are someplace other than we choose to be. So let's just practice that for a few moments. In finding that place of attention, the point that we want to focus on And as we notice our attention in some place other than our chosen point, as we will notice, the most important thing is to choose to bring our attention back. To whatever our point of focus we have chosen. The effort is to place our attention to notice when we have gone someplace other than where we choose without judgment, pick up the attention, put it back, and then release anything else that is other than simply maintaining the fundamental structure 
of our practice. In this way, we can release a sense of over-efforting while still having a strong foundation and structure. We can release a sense of anxiety about having to stay in the right place. We can release a sense of accomplishment knowing that simply the willingness to choose to come back to wherever we choose to have our focus is the meditation. And finally, as we draw practice to a close, we can simply bring a sense of gratitude for the entire range of experience that we have during our practice, both the times that we were on point and the times that we were off point and especially the times that we decided to come back to wherever it is we choose to make our focus as many times as we need to do it over and over again. And just appreciate the entire experience for what it is. Thank you, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. I feel I feel a joy to be on the planet at the same time that you are. So I want to thank you and also for participating in Sounds True's Meditation Summit. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to my conversation with Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. Rev Angel, along with John Kabat-Zinn, Jack Cornfield, Tara Brock, George Mumford, and many others will be featured presenters in Sounds True's Year of Mindfulness, a new year-long online offering which features broadcasts each month and trainings to bring mindfulness off of the cushion into every area of your life. A Year of Mindfulness begins on February 13, 2017. For more information, please visit SoundsTrue.com and look for a year of mindfulness. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.